You're listening to Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. Read for you by January Lavoie. It looks like blood from a distance, but as they pull into the driveway, it's clear that it's red spray paint. Murderer. Written across their white double garage doors in a series of angry slashes large enough to be read from a block away. It's out of place, the words screaming into the pleasant suburb as loudly as if someone were actually shouting it. Walt cuts the engine. Geo stares at the garage, then chances a glance in her father's direction. Both his large hands are still on the steering wheel, but his knuckles are pale, his jaw set in stone. Walter Shaw has lived here for over 40 years. It's the only house he's ever owned. The mortgage paid off long before Geo went to Hazelwood. Walter Shaw is a good man, a successful doctor, and an upstanding citizen of the community. He doesn't deserve this. Someone has desecrated his house because of her, and the guilt stabs her like a prison shank, quickly and painfully and in multiple places. Dad, this wasn't here when I left, he says. He yanks the keys out of the ignition and tosses them into her lap. Let yourself in the house. I'll take care of this. Now, Georgina. She does as she's told, bringing with her the empty Starbucks cups and her duffel bag, now containing the gun she picked up from Samuel on the way here. She plans to stick it under her pillow. Though the neighborhood is quiet, it's mid-afternoon on a Monday and most people are still at work, she can't help but feel like she's being observed, as if the neighbors are peering out their windows to witness Walt's infamous daughter's not-so-triumphant return home. Murderer. It's not the welcome home she expected, but that doesn't mean it's not the welcome home she deserves. The house looks exactly the same as she remembers. It's both comforting and surreal. Taking a moment to pause in the front entryway, she breathes in the smell that hasn't changed since she was a little girl. Walt's signature beef stew is simmering in the slow cooker in the kitchen. It's not a large house, but it's always been enough for the two of them. The portrait of her parents on their wedding day still rests in the center of the fireplace mantle in the living room. Full color, but with that 70s retro green gold tint. Walter and Grace Gallardo Shaw were a beautiful couple. Her father, one-quarter Jamaican, looking sharp in a gray tuxedo complete with satin stripe and oversized lapels. Her mother, half Filipino, dressed in a simple lace gown with bell sleeves, her black hair swept up into a chignon. They were an elegant mixed-race couple during a time when it wasn't as widely accepted as it is now, and Gio got the best of both of them. Unless her dad moved it, her mother's wedding dress should still be hanging in the upstairs closet. Gio always thought she'd wear it on her wedding day. But after she and Andrew got engaged and the wedding preparations began, the dress suddenly seemed inappropriate for what they were planning. It was too modest, too old-fashioned. The thought shames her now. Sometimes she wonders if this is why she truly ended up in prison. To save her from herself. She looks at the rest of the pictures on the mantel, photos she hasn't seen in five years. Grace Shaw is in most of them, but the only real memories Gio has of her mother are from when she was sick. 
They discovered a lump in her breast when Gio was only two, and she died a few months after Gio turned five. She picks up the photo of herself sitting on her mother's lap on her fifth birthday, surrounded by balloons, a giant chocolate cake in the center of the table. Her mother's head is wrapped in a colorful scarf to hide the hair loss. Her father only had two girlfriends after his wife died, the first while Gio was in grade school and the second while she was in high school. Both women were very nice, but neither relationship lasted long. A few months each, if that. You only get one heart, Walt said to his daughter after the second one ended. He seemed sad, but not regretful. I gave mine to your mother the day I met her, and she still has it. For a long time, Gio believed that was true. One heart, one chance at love. It had certainly felt that way with Calvin. At 16, she couldn't imagine loving anyone the way she loved Calvin James. And the truth was, she never did. It had been different with Andrew, after all. Less passionate, but more secure. More mature, but less spontaneous. Less exciting, but completely fucking safe. As a healthy relationship probably should be. According to her father, Andrew was married now, to a sales rep who used to work at ship. They had twin girls the year before. Gio didn't blame him for moving on with his life. She'd have done the same. She hears the pressure washer turn on outside. Washing the garage doors is the last thing her dad needs today. Sighing, she heads upstairs. The last time she lived in this house, she had just turned 18. She had packed what she could for college, first staying in the dorms at Puget Sound State, and then renting a house a few minutes off campus with four other girls for her remaining three years. She could have lived at home and commuted to PSSU, but she knew she needed to get away. Once she did, she never moved back. And it wasn't because her dad was difficult to live with, quite the opposite. Growing up, she never had a curfew. There were never set rules to follow. She never even had a list of chores because it was never necessary. Between the two of them, they managed to fill the holes her mother left when she died. Gio did the dishes because her dad did the cooking. She cleaned the inside of the house because he took care of the yard and maintenance. She rarely stayed out late because Walt could never fall asleep until she was home, and she didn't want him to go to work tired. Because she was offered so much freedom, she hardly ever felt the need to take it. Funny how that worked. She debates going into her old bedroom first, but the idea of a bubble bath is just too tempting. Her bathroom looks exactly the same, and Gio smiles in anticipation of her first hot soak in years. She plugs the bathtub drain and turns on the faucet. She painted the walls a light purple when she was 15, and after five years of prison gray, the color is a welcome sight. Or had she been 16? She thinks for a moment. It was before she met Calvin, so that meant she'd just turned 16. Funny how she still does that. All the memories of her life are neatly divided into sections. Before Calvin, after Calvin, before prison, and now after prison. As the bathtub fills, she peels off her clothes and takes a look at herself in the mirror. She's aged. It's jarring. Not that she looks older than her 35 years, she doesn't. If anything, she can pass for 30. But she's much older compared to the last time she saw her face in this particular bathroom, in this particular mirror, 
in this particular light. There are faint lines around her eyes that weren't there when she was 18. There's a new groove etched between her eyebrows, and her skin, once luminous, looks dull and tired after five years of mediocre jailhouse cuisine, sleepless nights, and minimal fresh air. But she's home. Finally, she's home. She sinks into the bathtub, the hot, soapy water engulfing her body. It feels so good, she groans. She closes her eyes and allows herself to relax. Twenty minutes later, she steps out, only because her finger pads have pruned and the water has begun to cool. She wraps herself in an old towel, her mood about 50 pounds lighter than it was the day before. It's almost hard to believe that only that morning she was still in prison, eating runny oatmeal and overcooked eggs, a criminal among criminals. The good mood doesn't last long. As soon as she steps into the bedroom, her childhood bedroom, it all comes back. Her father hasn't touched her room, and it looks exactly as she left it. Just like that, it's 19 years ago. The floral bedspread. Calvin. The window he used to climb through late at night. Calvin. The empty jar on the dresser which used to be filled with candy. Calvin. The memories surround her, crushing her, and panic takes over, sinking its claws in. Dizzy, she puts a hand on the wall to steady herself and takes several deep breaths. Closing her eyes, she forces herself to count down from ten, focusing on her chest rising and falling, her lungs expanding and contracting, listening to her breath as it moves in and out of her body. A simple relaxation technique, something she'd learned in yoga class years ago. By the fifth breath, she's out of danger. By the eighth, she's calm. Her heart slows back to its normal rate, and she opens her eyes again, more prepared. Calvin may not be gone, but he's not here. And that's good enough for now. A beam of afternoon sunlight is streaming in from the window, filtered by the pink lace curtains she's had since she was a baby. The room is cast in a soft pink glow, the poster of Mariah Carey hangs in the same spot beside her closet door. Vanilla-scented candles in various stages of melt top the bookshelf. The second shelf is filled with Stephen King paperbacks, a stack of high school yearbooks, ribbons she'd won in dance and cheerleading competitions, and the stuffed gorilla her dad bought her at the Woodland Park Zoo when she was 12. Look, Ma, they caught a monkey, a small child had exclaimed delightedly when they'd come out of the gift shop. Geo swinging the stuffed ape by one of its legs. Everyone around had laughed. The framed photograph of herself and Angela is still on her bedside table, unmoved after all these years. It was taken a month before her best friend died, when they were both 16 and laughing on a sunny day at the fair. A frozen moment in time. It was the photo that Geo could never bear to look at afterward. It was also the photo she could never bear to put away. They had used that photo on Angela's missing person flyer, the one that had been pasted on lampposts throughout Seattle, the same one that had been in all the newspapers and on TV. They'd also used it in the courtroom years later, and Geo didn't blame them. No one had been more in love with life than Angela Wong. She picks up the empty mason jar, the one Calvin filled with cinnamon hearts to give to her.
It had been a present, his way of apologizing after the first time he hit her. Gio never particularly liked the candy, which was the kind that was sweet on your tongue at first, only to turn hot the longer you kept it there. Cinnamon hearts were his favorite candy, not hers. But she'd accepted the gift anyway, because she thought the bright red hearts inside the glass looked pretty. Calvin ended up eating them all, the candy disappearing slowly until only the empty jar was left. Gio takes the jar into her hands. She should have done this years ago, right when Calvin gave it to her. She hurls it at her bedroom wall as hard as she can, anticipating the satisfying sound of shattering glass. It smacks the wall hard, indenting the sheetrock and scraping the paint. But it doesn't break. In the beginning, he was all Geo could see. It was magical at first. It was heady, trippy, whatever word best describes being young and intoxicatingly in love for the very first time. She loved the way he smelled and how his cologne stayed on her clothes long after he'd left. She knew the shape of his hand and how it felt when hers was in it, the exact places his fingers squeezed. And it stayed magical even when it turned violent. That's the part nobody explains to you. The first time Calvin hit her, it was after the Soundgarden concert. She wore, at his request, something sexy, in this case a low-cut black top and short skirt she borrowed from Angela. Some guy stared at her all night, and because she'd eventually smiled back at him, Calvin had been forced to punch the guy in the face. When they got back to his place later that night, they argued. Calvin yelled and accused and smashed things. She yelled back, defensive at first, certain she'd done nothing wrong, which only enraged him more. It was confusing. He seemed to want other guys to notice her, but God forbid they looked too long or smiled or spoke to her. He wanted her to look sexy, but God help her if she acted slutty. It was all about lines with Calvin, very fine lines, and she never knew exactly where they were until he told her. And he didn't tell her with words. He told her with punches, slaps, and shoves, all designed to make her feel small and unimportant and humiliated. Being in an abusive relationship was nothing like Gio expected. She knew hitting was wrong, of course. She wasn't stupid. They had discussed the issue of domestic violence back in sixth grade health class. It was also part of the social studies curriculum in seventh grade. And then in her freshman year of high school, a police officer had come to St. Martin's to give a talk about how to get out of an abusive relationship. On any given day, there were posters tacked up in the hallways, encouraging girls in bad relationships to seek help. Your guidance counselors are your friends. Talk to us. Everybody knew that violence in a relationship was wrong. Just like smoking, drugs, alcohol, unprotected sex, sex without consent, and so on. Nobody was clueless about this stuff. There was no lack of education. Ignorance was not the problem. The problem was that none of those public service announcements addressed any of the real issues behind abusive relationships. A relationship isn't supposed to make you feel out of control. It's not supposed to consume you. It's not supposed to change you into someone you don't want to be. But how do you teach that? How do you explain to someone who's never been in a romantic relationship what a healthy relationship feels like? How do you explain to a 16-year-old girl who's never been in love what love is supposed to feel like? And another thing these lessons didn't address? 
just how quickly the abuse would start to feel normal. Gio's father had never hit her, not once, ever. This was no pattern from her past that was repeating itself. She loved Calvin so much that she began to accept that this was part of the package, part of the price she had to pay to be with him. Because the alternative, not being with him, was unfathomable. And of course, he didn't always hit. 99% of the time, he was affectionate, kind, generous. It wasn't like Gio was covered in bruises from head to toe. And it wasn't like he was breaking her arm. So, okay, every once in a while, he got mad. Usually because of something stupid Gio did. They would argue. If she pushed him too far, if she said something snarky or sarcastic or she hurt his feelings, he'd hit her. End of argument. No big deal. All couples fought. Most of the time, he didn't hurt her. When things were good, they were great. But when they were bad, they were terrible. Deep down, though, there was a small part of Geo that liked it. Liked how worked up he could get, enjoyed how jealous he could feel. It was so easy to mistake control for love, to believe he was upset because he cared, that he was protective because he loved her so goddamn much. Sometimes she liked pushing those boundaries, seeing how far she could go before he snapped, seeing how crazy she could make him. It was her way of controlling him, too, because, yes, it went both ways. And yes, she was fooling herself. None of it was okay. But she loved him. Every part of her loved every part of him. Calvin waited for her most days after school in his bright red Trans Am, and Gio would feel a surge of pride every time she bounced down those school steps. He would be leaning against the car waiting for her. It was like a scene out of a movie. It was like 16 candles, and she was the regular girl, and he was the ungettable guy. The other girls gawked, and while Calvin might smile at them, it was Gio he kissed. Gio he opened the car door for. Gio, who drove off with him into the metaphorical sunset. He had a day job as a house painter, but he didn't work all the time, and so he sold drugs, weed, speed, and painkillers mainly, on the side, to pay the bills and to pay for the car. Gio was alarmed at first, but then she realized it wasn't as shady as the movies made it out to be. His customers were mostly college students, suburban housewives, and overachieving high school kids. They would come to the apartment, money would change hands, everyone was polite. After a while, that began to feel normal, too. He never pushed her into having sex. He knew she was a virgin and that she wasn't ready. So they did other things, things with his hands and his tongue that made her cry out his name as her eyes rolled back in her head. But full-on sex? Never. I want your first time to be special, he said. I can wait. It only made her love him more. Calvin took up an enormous amount of space in her life. The more time she spent with him, the less she saw Angela and Kaiser. Cheer practice, something that was scheduled three days a week after school, was becoming more and more of an annoyance for both of them. I can't see you tonight, Gio said to him one afternoon. They were sitting in his car at the far end of the parking lot behind the school, near the wooded area. Classes had let out for the day, and she had practice in 15 minutes. My dad's expecting me home for dinner, and I have so much homework. She didn't tell him her grades were slipping. She didn't want him to think of her as a child. 
He was 21, his high school days long behind him. So quit cheer, Calvin said. I can't quit. She was appalled at the suggestion. I'm a cheerleader. Nobody's ever quit cheer before. Do you know how hard it is to make the team? But it's so stupid. Calvin traced a finger up her bare thigh. The hem of her school kilt was short when she stood. It was practically non-existent when she sat. Reflexively, she spread her legs a little, closing her eyes as his fingers brushed the outer edge of her panties. She wanted them inside her, but she was still shy about asking. Thankfully, she didn't have to. He leaned over and kissed her again, his tongue intertwining with hers, tasting faintly of beer, cigarettes, and cinnamon hearts. It was a taste she would forever equate with feeling like a child and an adult at the same time, which is really what a teenager is. His fingers slipped inside her panties and stroked her, and it felt like she was melting and firming up at exactly the same time. Quit, he said again. His middle finger entered her a little deeper, but not much. She was a virgin, after all. His thumb kept pressure on exactly the right spot. It felt good. So good that it couldn't possibly be the same thing as what they'd learned about in sex ed. She spread her legs even wider, feeling an orgasm approaching as he kissed his way down her neck. If you quit, we'll have more time together. Then I won't have to stop. Abruptly, he pulled his hand away. She gasped at the sudden absence of pleasure. It almost hurt. It's time for practice, he said. Better get going. You don't want to be late. She stared at him in disbelief, but the clock on the dashboard didn't lie. She had two minutes to get to the gym, but she could have finished in 10 seconds if he hadn't stopped. You're mean, she said. Then don't go. She couldn't not go. She'd already been late the last three practices. Trying to put herself back together, she flipped down the visor and quickly checked her face. I hate this as much as you do. Doubt that. I can't quit, she said. Angela would kill me. He snorted. You care way too much about what she thinks. She's my best friend. She gave him a look. I've known her since the fourth grade. Then she'll understand that cheer is stupid and that you now have better things to do. She won't see it that way. Gio pushed the visor back up. She's not exactly understanding. She's a bitch if you ask me. Stop it. Gio smacked his thigh lightly. Don't say that. This has been hard for her. We used to do everything together, and since I met you, I hardly see her anymore. I think that's why she's so grumpy. Bitchy. Irritated all the time. I need to spend some time with her. Gio grabbed her knapsack. It's Kaiser's birthday tomorrow. We're taking him out for pizza and a movie. I thought we were going out tomorrow. Calvin's eyes darkened. Gio braced herself. She knew what that look could lead to, which is why she'd told him here at the parking lot at school a minute before she had to leave. Their fights never escalated when there was a chance someone could see them, and by the time they talked about it again the next day, he'd be calm about it. And truth be told, Gio didn't like it much when they went out. She was underage, so if they went to a bar, there was always a buddy he'd have to talk to in order to sneak her in without scrutinizing her fake ID. 
She didn't like the taste of alcohol, so she rarely drank. The bars were always dark, shoddy, and filled with smoke. Some guy would always look at her wrong, and then Calvin would be forced to have words with him. It was exciting at the beginning, but after a couple of months, it had lost its appeal. She missed sleepovers with the girls, poring over old yearbooks and gossiping about who looked better and who looked fat. She missed pizza and Diet Coke, hanging out at the mall, going to the movies. She missed the Friday night parties after the football game. She missed being 16. She even missed Kaiser, who sometimes got on her nerves with his puppy-like adoration, but who made her laugh like no one else. She couldn't tell her boyfriend any of this, though, because that world didn't include him. And Calvin didn't like anything he wasn't included in. You could come, she said, but they both knew it wouldn't happen. She didn't want him there, and he sure as shit had no desire to hang out with a bunch of teenagers. He didn't respond, and when she went to kiss him, he turned his face so she only got his cheek. She was three minutes late to cheer practice. The girls were stretching as she ran into the gym, out of breath and slightly disheveled. Tess DeMarco, a fellow cheerleader and a girl who desperately wanted to be Angela's best friend, gave her the once-over. You're late, Tess said. Again. What is it now, the fourth time? Shut up, Tess. Gio said. Angela, who was on the floor stretching her hamstrings, looked up. Don't tell her to shut up. You are late, and this is the fourth time. The gym went quiet. Bodies stopped moving. The rest of the squad always listened with rapt attention whenever Angela, their cheer captain, spoke. And come on, it's three minutes. Gio glanced up at the clock on the gym wall. I'm here. I'm ready to work. You're not even dressed, Angela said. Gio was still wearing her school uniform. You might as well have stayed with Kelvin. He's all you give a shit about now anyway. Gio felt her face redden, painfully aware that the other girls were hanging on every word. Tess in particular wore a vicious smile, enjoying every second of it. Ange, stop it. It'll take me two minutes to change. If this is so inconvenient for you, then why do you even want to do this? You clearly think you're too good for it, for the team, and for me, and Kaiser, who, by the way, says you haven't returned any of his calls in, like, two weeks. Of course I don't, Gio said. This was getting way out of hand, and she was desperate to end the conversation. You know how much you- You don't want to quit? Fine, I'll do it for you, Angela snapped, cutting her off. She made a point of addressing the other girls. Who here wants Georgina off the squad? Tess's arm shot up, but the other girls looked at each other with wide eyes, completely unsure if this was real or not. Stop it, Gio said, alarmed. You can't, you're always late for practice, Angela said. And when you're here, you're distracted. Our pyramid almost collapsed last week because you didn't know where your arms were supposed to be. You're lazy, unreliable, and we all know you don't want to be here. And I hate to say it, but you've gained weight. Gasps all around. I have not gained weight, Gio said hotly, and that's when her best friend smiled. Angela knew she hadn't gained any weight, but she also knew it would get a rise out of Gio if she said it. She'd done it to be nasty and to embarrass her in front of the other girls. You know what? Calvin's right. Gio could be nasty too. You are a bitch. More gasps. One girl's hand even flew up to cover her gaping mouth. 
Nobody at St. Martin's had ever called Angela Wong a bitch. At least not publicly, and most certainly not to her face. Several of the girls took a step back, away from Gio, as if to distance themselves from the social pariah she had just become. Get out. Angela's own face was a deep shade of maroon. She took several breaths, but remained calm. We'll need your uniform back first thing tomorrow and your locker cleaned out by lunchtime. Cheerleaders had extra wide lockers, same as the football players. It was a privilege to have one. Like it was a privilege to be a cheerleader. You heard her, Tess said, her face filled with triumph. It made her look ugly. The gym is reserved for cheer practice right now. And you're not a cheerleader anymore. So get out. Fighting back tears, Gio turned and left the gym, running smack into Kaiser outside the lockers. He was dressed for soccer practice. She pulled back, looked up at him, and then burst into tears. Whoa, he said, his face filled with alarm, grabbing her shoulders. Are you okay? What's the matter? Talk to me. Leave me alone. She shook him off and continued down the hallway. She was still crying when she paged Calvin from the payphone outside the cafeteria a moment later. Come get me, she said, sobbing when he called back a minute later. He was out front within ten minutes. She had calmed down by then, her despair turning into anger. She told him what happened, and he listened quietly, nodding, murmuring soothing things, his hand on her thigh, squeezing every so often to comfort her. Finally, he said, Cheer means this much to you, huh? Gio nodded. She did love cheer. She loved being part of a team, wearing the uniform to school on game days, cheering in front of thousands of fans under the Friday night lights. She might have lost some of her focus lately, but that didn't mean she wanted out. Hell, it was the very thing she and Calvin had almost argued about earlier. Okay, then, he said. We'll fix it. How? We'll fix it, he said again. I've known girls like that my whole life. Self-entitled girls. Girls who think the whole world revolves around them because they were born beautiful. Something they had no control over anyway. Give it a few days, then apologize. And when things are a bit better, set something up for the three of us to get together. She resents me because she doesn't know me. I should let her get to know me. I'll charm her and she'll give you your spot back. Trust me. It was a sensible idea. Smart, even. He leaned over and kissed her, gently at first, then passionately, and slowly she felt herself begin to relax. Because she did trust him. God help her, she did. The room is too dark, the bed too soft the blankets too warm, the house too quiet. Gio had a routine in prison, specific times of the day when she ate, showered, used the toilet, socialized, cut hair, watched TV, and slept. Rinse, repeat. It will take some time to get used to her new life, which is really her old life, which feels strange and foreign to her now. Things on the outside look the same as they used to, but they don't feel at all like they used to. It's strange to not have a routine, to not be told when she can or can't do something. She feels untethered, and it isn't as liberating as she'd imagined. 
Sleep won't come, and she stares up at the ceiling at the glow-in-the-dark stars that have been there since she was five. Her father came home from work one day with several packs of them in various shapes and sizes, and they spent an hour sticking them on. Her mother had died a month earlier, and she was having awful nightmares. Her father promised her that as long as the stars were shining down on her, nothing bad would ever happen. He was wrong, of course. A little after 10 p.m., she finally gives up on sleep, padding downstairs to the kitchen to make herself some tea. Her father is scheduled to work at the hospital till midnight, and she probably won't be able to fall asleep until he's home. It's weird being in the house alone. After all, she hasn't been alone in five years. On her way to the kitchen, she glances out the front window and stops. A black car with tinted windows is parked at the curb, its headlights off. But its interior light is on, and she can detect the shape of someone sitting inside. She freezes. Then the car door opens, and Kaiser Brody steps out. Exhaling, she heads to the front door. She has it open before he even gets to the porch. What are you doing here? She asks him, her breath trailing her words in a mist of white in the cold night air. The chill doesn't bother her. She never got to see her breath in prison. The inmates weren't allowed in the recreation yard at night when temperatures were the lowest. Hello to you too, Kaiser says. I was about to leave and I saw the light come on. Can I come in? How long were you out there? He pauses. A while. Why? She asks. You know why. Kaiser looks exhausted, the lines around his eyes and mouth a little deeper than the last time she saw him. He looks older. But then again, she does too. I haven't heard from him, Gio offers. She doesn't have to say who him is. They both know. Okay. He turns to leave. Wait, she says, and her voice sounds more desperate than she intends. She doesn't want him to go. She doesn't want to be alone. I was going to make some tea. You're welcome to join me. He turns back, gives her a tired smile. Sure. Thanks. He steps inside the house and she closes the door behind him, locking it with both the deadbolt and the chain. They stand awkwardly for a moment. Like the last time she saw him, she notices how much taller he is now, how different he looks, how different he smells. This version of Kaiser doesn't jibe with the boy she always pictures in her head. This version of Kaiser is a man. He follows her to the kitchen, and Gio frowns as she scans the counter. We used to have a tea kettle, she says, opening cupboard doors one after the other. Use that. Kaiser points to a machine she hasn't seen before. It's sitting beside the fridge, and it looks like a miniature shiny red version of a coffee shop espresso maker. I'd prefer coffee anyway if you have decaf. I don't even know what that is. It's an espresso, he says. Seeing the blank look on her face, he points to the table. Sit. Allow me. We have one of these at the precinct. It's pretty good, though the coffee in the morgue is better. The morgue? He chuckles, pulling open the tray underneath the Nespresso machine, which also doubles as a stand. He selects a pod, then opens the fridge and takes out the milk. There's a foamer sitting beside the coffee maker, and he appears to know exactly what he's doing as he makes her a decaf latte. He hands it to her, 
waits for her to take a sip. Well, shit, Gio says. It's good. I can see why my dad bought one of these. He fixes a cup for himself and takes a seat across from her at the kitchen table. It's surreal to be in the kitchen with him, the same place they'd spent a lot of time in as teenagers, eating pizza and hot dogs, working on a chemistry project, making jello shots for a party they weren't supposed to go to using vodka that her father forgot he had. Now it's only when he smiles that she sees glimmers of the old Kaiser underneath the leather jacket and three-day scruff. She wonders what she looks like to him. As if reading her mind, he says, You look good. She looks down at her coffee. Liar. No, you do, he says. You really look okay. The woman I arrested that day five years ago, I didn't recognize her. But you right now, this is a person I remember. It must be the sweatpants and no makeup, she says, but he doesn't laugh. And if she's being honest with herself, she knows what he means. Are you mad at me? He asks. Just like that, they're 16 again. She shakes her head, allowing a small smile. For what? Doing your job? Walter hates me. My dad doesn't hate anyone. He's protective. And he blames himself. For what? Kaiser looks surprised. For working too much? For not being home a lot? Geo sighs. For not knowing I was dating a guy so much older? Mind you, Calvin was only 21, but that was a big age difference back then. Huge, he says with a nod. I never liked him. Calvin, not your dad. I know. You were a really good friend to me back then, Kai. I'm sorry I wasn't a better friend to you. At least I know why now, he says. And for what it's worth, I forgive you. Thank you, she says. It comes out a whisper. His forgiveness means more to her than she realized. Now if only she could forgive herself. She sighs inwardly. She knows she never will. Did your dad tell you what we found out there the other day? Kaiser asks, gesturing to the kitchen window. It's too dark to see anything other than their reflections in the glass, but she knows he's referring to the woods beyond. His gaze is fixed on her, searching and intense. He didn't have to. I saw it on the news. I had a TV in my cell. She sips her coffee. They said it was a woman and a minor. The woman was dismembered, he says. And the minor was a child, strangled. A two-year-old boy. Gio's sharp, sudden intake of breath sounds like a hiss. I need you to look at something, Kaiser says, pulling out his iPhone. It's gigantic, like a small tablet, and it looks even bigger in person than it did in the television commercials. Gio hasn't seen one in real life before. A picture of the boy. No. Please, he says, tapping on the phone. It's important. Just look. He slides his phone across the table toward her, and despite everything inside her that's screaming, don't look, she looks. He was indeed a child. Cheeks and hands still chubby, eyes closed, belly protruding. If not for the mild grayish cast to his skin, he might have been sleeping. The heart drawn on his chest looks like blood. 
Two words are written inside in neat block letters. See me. Jesus Christ, she says softly, because she doesn't know what else to say. They were found right there, Kaiser says, making no move to take back the phone. Almost in the exact same spot Angela was buried. Maybe it's a coincidence. I don't believe in those, he says. The woman was killed the same way Angela was and dismembered the same way she was, with a saw. Head cut off, arms at the shoulders and elbows, legs at the hips and knees, hands, feet. She was buried in a series of shallow graves, her torso in one of them, the rest of her scattered around it. The boy was in a tiny grave about five feet away. He reaches forward, swipes at the phone, changing the picture. Gio closes her eyes. Look, he says. For God's sake, look. She looks down again. It's a photo of a woman on an autopsy table, same grayish cast to her skin as the boy, hair matted with dirt. Except this image is even more horrific. The woman's arms and legs aren't attached to her torso, and her head isn't attached to her neck. There's a small gap between each, because she's in pieces. This is Calvin's work, Kaiser says. You know it, and I know it. Gio's stomach turns, and she's out of her chair in a flash. She makes it to the powder room just in time, dropping her knees onto the cold tile as the bile comes up her throat. She retches into the toilet until every last trace of her father's beef stew is gone. When her stomach is empty, she stands up shakily and flushes, dizzy from the exertion. She turns to the sink and splashes her face with cold water. As she rinses out her mouth, she tries not to think about the woman in the picture and how much it all reminds her of Angela. It's becoming painfully clear that it doesn't matter how long ago it was. It doesn't matter how much guilt and remorse she feels. It doesn't matter how much time and energy she's spent trying to forget it or how many years she's served in prison. What happened to Angela that night will never leave her. Something that changes you so profoundly never could. And not only because of how the world sees you, but because of the way you see yourself. It wasn't just Angela who died that night. Part of Gio did too, and she's long suspected it was the best part of her. She heads back to the kitchen and takes a seat once again. Kaiser knows exactly what happened in the bathroom, but he looks neither satisfied nor concerned. What do you want from me, Kai? Gio looks at him through bleary eyes. The sour taste of vomit is still faintly in her mouth, and she takes a long sip of her coffee despite her still queasy stomach. I don't know what I can say or what I can do. I haven't had any contact with Calvin since that day in the courtroom. I hope I never do. Kaiser looks at his phone again, and Gio is scared he's going to make her look at another photo. She's relieved when he tucks it back into his pocket. Tell me what you know about Ship Pharmaceuticals' new cosmetic line, he says. She almost chokes on her coffee. That's about the last thing she expected him to say. What? You worked for Ship up until five years ago. Now they have a lipstick line. What do you know about it? He sees the look on her face. Indulge me, please. I don't know anything about it, Gio says, confused. At the time I went away, we'd just launched a line of health and hygiene products. Shampoo, conditioner, body lotion, body wash, etc. There were no cosmetics then, but they were part of my long-term plan. 
I was VP of Lifestyle and Beauty. Well, they're doing lipsticks now. She waits for him to elaborate, and when he doesn't, she says, Okay, so what? That's not surprising. That was always the plan I... She stops herself again. That was always the direction the brand was going to go. It makes sense to start with lipstick. They can start out with a few shades, see how they're received, and begin expanding. There are ten shades so far, he says. But the thing is, they've only been on sale for a week. And they're only available in one store in the entire country. Nordstrom's flagship store in downtown Seattle. Okay, Geo says again. She has no idea where he's going with this. That's not uncommon. Both Ship and Nordstrom are Seattle-based companies, and it's a good test market. If it sells well at the flagship store, Nordstrom will place it in all their stores. Do you know how many lipsticks there are in the U.S.? Taking into account all the brands, old and new, and all the shades, current and discontinued? Millions, Geo says without hesitation. Want to take a guess on how many Ship lipsticks were sold at Nordstrom this past week? I have no idea. I don't know how well they marketed it. Less than 50, Kaiser says, which, I'm told, is unspectacular and goes to show how hard it is to launch a new lipstick when there are already so many to choose from. It's competitive, yes, but Ship knows that. Almost all of those new Ship lipsticks were sold to women. Makes sense. Except for one, Kaiser says. The day before the woman and child were murdered, a guy bought one of them a few minutes before the store closed. We requested their security footage. He takes out his phone again, finds a picture, and slides it to Gio. For the second time that night, she freezes. The photo is black and white and a bit grainy, taken from an odd angle at a distance, but Gio is looking at a close-up. The man standing at the ship lipstick kiosk is undeniably tall, dressed in a t-shirt, jeans, and boots. He's wearing a ball cap pulled low, and while the camera can't see the top of his head, the curve of his jaw is instantly familiar. He's even wearing an oversized watch on the right wrist, something he always did even though he was right-handed. Calvin, she says, her voice choked. Are you sure? Kaiser asks. It looks exactly like him. She stares at the photo, trying to make sense of it. I, I don't understand. I saw a snippet on the news while I was in prison. They said he was spotted somewhere in Europe, Poland or Czech Republic. Her voice dies. Kaiser swipes the phone, returning it to the picture of the little boy with the heart on his chest. Then he reaches into his breast pocket, pulling out a sheet of torn yellow notepad paper. She's seen it before. It's the same paper he showed her the first and only time he visited her in prison. It's the paper Calvin was doodling on during the trial, the one with the heart on it, the one with her name inside it. He places the photo and the piece of paper side by side. The hearts and handwriting look almost identical. One says G.S. The other says, see me. What does he want you to see? Kaiser asks. His face is neutral, but his neck is flushed. I don't know. What does he want you to see? It's practically a roar, and she jumps in her chair. I don't know, she says. Her voice is loud, too, but it's not filled with anger and frustration like his is. 
It's filled with confusion, desperation, and fear. Kai, I swear I don't know. He's sending you a message. I don't. He's going to come for you, Kaiser says flatly. The chair scrapes the kitchen tile as he pushes it away from the table and stands up. She sees then that his coffee mug is empty. She doesn't remember him drinking it. Hers is half full and cold. This is all about you. I feel it. If that concerns you at all. Of course it does, Gio says, looking up at him. But I can't run anymore, Kai. I did that already, remember? I'm tired. This is where I am. If he's going to come for me, then let him come. If you're so concerned, you'll catch him this time and put him in prison like you did me. I did catch him. Yeah, and he got away, she says bitterly. I'm terrified, okay? Is that what you want to hear? Maybe this is about me, and maybe it isn't, but he had 14 years to come back and kill me after Angela. He didn't. He killed other women instead, and who knows how many more, because you guys didn't do your fucking job and keep him in prison with the rest of the criminals. I was 16 when I did the worst, most terrible thing I have ever done or will do. You were 30 when he escaped from that prison, and now it's five years later and more victims are turning up and you still haven't caught him. We can sit here and discuss who's the bigger failure, but I'll save you the trouble. We both are. Kaiser's jaw works. He doesn't respond. Gio pushes her chair back and stands up. I can see you're ready to leave. Let me walk you to the door so you can leave faster. Gio escorts him down the hallway, resisting the urge to place her hands on his back so she can get him out of her sight quicker. He unlocks the front door, then stops. He looks down at her, his face etched in weariness, mirroring hers. One last thing, he says, reaching into his pants pocket. He hands her a slender plastic tube, black matte finish, gold lettering. It's the new ship lipstick. The name of the shade of lipstick used on the boy? It's called Cinnamon Heart, if that means anything to you. He turns and leaves, slamming the door shut behind him. He doesn't get to see the look on Gio's face, the blood fading from her cheeks as she pales, the new wave of nausea that hits her so fast she might have thrown up again had her stomach not already been emptied. She leans against the wall for support, looking down at the lipstick he'd given her. Cinnamon heart, if that means anything to you. Yes, it does. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of Jar of Hearts wherever books or audiobooks are sold.